Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we've got 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then we're bringing you a clip from our webinar this week with pollster Dave Peleologos. And of course, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. Exciting week, lots happening, primary elections, COVID-19 news, flu shot news, you name it. Um, <laughs> let's hear in this segment begin with um, what appears to be a first in the nation. Massachusetts has mandated flu shots for students entering school. Um, they, and, and the flu shot needs to be administered by December 31st. There was a major, major protest in recent days here in Massachusetts against this mandate. Um, and uh, I would not be dismissive of it because it represents, um, I think not just the traditional anti-vaxxer, but a broader cross-section of people who are like, hey, wait a second. Now you're, now you're telling me I have to have my child do a, medical, a little medical procedure in order to come into school. Um, what are your thoughts? And such a highly contested issue. I don't know about you, but on Facebook, I've seen so much conversation about this issue on Facebook. Um, I know somebody that was at the rally on Sunday um, streaming live on Facebook. People feel really passionately about this idea that who are you to mandate what I put in my child's bodies? And I, I do, I can understand it, but then on the flip side of it, I also understand the public health ramifications. Um, you know, Secretary Sutters and, and the governor have been very clear that this is an, an effort to mitigate an over our hospitals and, and medical facilities potentially being overwhelmed this fall and winter between the flu and coronavirus. Um, I think the numbers were 55,000 people a year are hospitalized because of the flu. If you put that together with coronavirus, also per potentially how one could exacerbate the other, um, it seems troublesome, certainly. But there is a part of, I mean, I get a flu shot every year. My, my son gets a flu shot. That's never been an issue for me. So I don't really balk at that. But if you are a person who has chosen not to, this could seem like, like an overreach, I guess, is how is how they feel that it's not the government's decision to mandate what goes into their children's bodies. I think it was um, my kid, my choice, and um, parents call the shots was one of the taglines. Uh, it doesn't is, seem like there's Mama anyone is, backing down. Mama is pissed was another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look. So, at some level, we already do this, right? You already have to have an immunization record on, yeah. on how with your schools. It's it's decades and decades old in terms of standard policy. So we're already doing this. And not, not, not to try to be cute enough and draw a little fine line, 
they're not mandating that your that your child have the flu shot. They're mandating it if you want your child to attend school. Now, what I don't get is, and many of these people are the same people who are crying out for kids to be in school learning. Exactly. Now, there's a little hang up with this. I believe even if you're if even if you are enrolled in a remote only school district, you still have to have the flu shot. I mean that that. That's a, a little, um, I don't know, a little Achilles heel of this policy, in my opinion. That suggests that you're really just trying to, you know, get everyone to take the flu shot and 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 um, uh, and using some muscle. But bottom line, I, I'm w- I'm with you on this. You know, I and, and except when I forget, I get the flu shot every year, and sometimes I forget. This year, I've already had. It. Uh, my family's all going to get it. Our kids are, and it's not an issue for me. I don't want to be dismissive of people who are against this. It's hard not to, because because I'm mostly dismissive of anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. But I, I, for some reason, I'm trying to understand better uh, on this. Um, nonetheless, it, it's it's a significant controversy, and and look, we're a state taking a step that no one else has taken. Yes. Which is par for the course for Massachusetts. We've been out in front on a lot of issues. Uh, That's generally how we like to be as a state, as a leader. Um, But this, I don't know, it doesn't look like the governor or um, Secretary Sutter's, the Department of Public Health, have any plans to alter their, their position. So we'll see what happens when push comes to shove over the course of the next couple months. Yeah. Interesting quotes in this. In a, there's a lot of stories about this, but there was one, particularly CBS News. You had a, a mother from Beverly talking about it, and then her son, ten-year-old kid. I don't like random things going into my body without my consent. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty sophisticated comment for a ten-year-old kid. I got to tell you. Yes, I do wonder where that came from, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> little media training in the kitchen table. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Cayenne, good topic, very interesting. All right, Cayenne, let's talk a little bit about Varsity Blues. By the way, a terrific, one, one, of, the, one of the five best uh, high school football movies in history, in my opinion, 1999, starring the uh, much older Van Der uh, terrific, uh, terrific movie. John Voight, uh, one of the greatest coaching roles ever. Anyways, I also think it's a great name for this investigation. It, it, it is. It had to be inspired by that film, I imagine, at least in some way. But uh, boy, oh boy, great column in the Boston Globe the other day by Alex Beam, who, by the way, not to go off on another tangent, I have consistently felt over the years one of the best and and maybe my favorite globe column is just because I think his perspective is always interesting, informed, and usually pretty funny. You know, Um, he's got a great piece on this about how during the entire stretch of the pandemic, there has been one consistent source of amusement for just about everybody. And that's been the, the varsity blues scandal. It's the scandal that keeps on giving, right? Yes. It started uh, a year ago, over a year ago. Yeah can't believe it's been that long it's like there was a world before COVID. i know it's 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 there, there was a world before COVID 19 it's, it's it's becoming blurry uh in this case though 
Um, as Alex Bean points out, we've had these celebrity perp walks along Northern Avenue outside the federal courthouse. Uh, the most deviant characters, and, and I'm not even talking about the parents in this case, but this, uh, these consultants and this in particular, this one consultant who worked with them to pull this scam off and then absolutely flipped like the Wall Street Journal reporters saying their book like a stack of pancakes on these people who trusted him. Uh, who, who trusted him to do an untrustworthy thing, that is. Uh, it's really been a remarkable case. Um, not a shred of sympathy has emerged for anyone involved, except, I believe, these kids, and, and not even really them, because, you know, you're talking about high school seniors. It's not like they're, they're, they were, had to be completely oblivious to this, although in some cases, I think the Felicity Huffman case, they implied or suggested that this was done without their kids' knowledge at all, which is a little hard to believe. Well, because they, it, they, that, they tampered with the test result or the testing circumstances. So I think that is understandable. Um, Lori Laughlin's children, you know, having them pose on rowers, that, that seems a little less <laughs> uh, possible for them to not know, but you know, the the quote in Alex's story in the Globe was, "This is a rich person's crime. That's what it is. That's exactly what it was. These are people with extraordinary means who took advantage of the fact that they had extraordinary means and access, and utilized it to benefit their kids and get their kids ahead um, in a way that is just not available to the vast majority of the population. Uh, the 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 kids are certainly, um, you know, I think sympathetic no matter what because what 17 or 18 year old looks at their parents and, and kind of pushes back on them trying to help them get into college. So I, I do think there's that element there. Um, and then you think about all the kids that didn't get in that deserve to get into these schools because their parents weren't able to pay for it. Um, and it's interesting that because of the celebrity and, and the people that were involved, I think are some quote unquote characters that surprised us a little bit. I mean, to see Aunt Becky doing a perp walk outside of the outside of court was certainly fodder for people. Um, and I think despite the fact that it began before the global pandemic, it was certainly news coverage that was a break from that, uh, which was welcome, I think, on a lot of days for a lot of people. Didn't William H. Macy, who I like a lot as an actor, did he just let his wife just take the rap completely? I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> like it. Oh, my goodness. He just is like, yeah, yeah, she really yeah, showed up. Went, oh, well. He went to jail, I think, for two weeks. And I don't think he's got anything. Now, one thing about this also, uh, in terms of, you know, thinking ahead strategically about trying to pull off a scam like this, you know, Living your whole life with a fraud in your past, and 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 that's what these kids were gonna do. I mean, just because you say they got away with it, and I'm sure some people did, other clients of this guy, say you get away with it, and you get into the school, and you have your college career, and you you know, you, and you and you're a bench warmer on the water polo team because you don't really play water polo. That fraud exists for someone to discuss, especially now. That fraud existed for someone who graduated from high school in the mid-80s, like I did. You think the record of what you did as a high school student is not findable? 
So, so they're going to start these kids off in life with a, a big fraud and that they have to then cover up for the rest of their lives. Because guess what? In the world of the canceled culture, your past is, it might as well be your present. Yeah, and in the world of a 24-hour news cycle and digital and social media being widely available, um, you can find anything at any point. So it's, you know, it was a bad decision. It was a bad decision by the parents. You're not doing your kids any favors. Um, But I do think, to your point, Alex's column was pithy. uh, And the headline was, thanks for the entertainment operation Varsity Blues. And that's what it became at a certain point. uh, And something that seemingly was needed for a lot of people. It was a break from everything else that was somewhat tragic and and hard to read on a daily basis for a while there. Well, well said. All right, Cayenne, thanks. All right, Cayenne, finally, let's talk about Twitter again and President Trump again. What a complex codependent relationship between the president and Twitter. Uh, The latest, and I mean that, I, I, I think they both need each other. Uh, like peanut butter needs jelly. I mean, but the uh, most recent flare-up was a post removed by Twitter, a post from the president removed by Twitter, alleging it was false information related to uh, what has been some very controversial and explosive CDC data released. Um, And it was taken down with a message from Twitter that says it's no longer available because it violated the Twitter rules I will say I like the idea of a major corporate um, entity, uh, you know, kind of poking their poking the president in the eye when they feel uh, they need to. Um, but I also like the idea that the president continues to use the Twitter platform as his way to communicate every day with the American people, for better, or most like, or mo- more often for worse. I think the codependent explanation is pretty on point. Um, They both need each other for for various reasons. Uh, And, you know, Twitter from the beginning, or not from the beginning, but in the last year as discussions of, you know, hacking of our elections, misleading information, uh, false advertising. Um, Facebook early on took the position that they were not going to, they did not feel they were responsible for determining what was true and what was not. Uh, And Mark Zuckerberg protested, testified before Congress saying just that. Twitter took a very different stance at that time and said, no, we think that we do have a a role to play in determining what is and is is not factual on our um, platform. And they've really followed through with that and going as far as to take down tweets from the president of the United States. Now, if you were to take out the idea of who the president is and understanding his Twitter behavior, that's a, it seems like a really big leap um, and a very big statement that you are willing to say, no, president, that is not accurate, and, and take down their whatever it is that they shared. Um, I say bravo to them for not backing down. I also think that it continues to play into the codependent relationship that that Trump and Twitter have. 
Um, and then as we have seen this week, Facebook has now taken some steps forward to say, you know what, we actually do have a role to play in this, and we are going to begin more carefully looking at ads and posts and accounts for factual information as we get closer and closer to the election. Makes sense. Um, you know, I'm, I'm <clears throat> the level of discourse, not the level of discourse, it's just the volume of discourse on Facebook every day that involves various COVID-19 theories is, is just tremendous. Um, the attentiveness of users to the platform is absolutely unbelievable. That's why, that's why as a business model, I think Facebook is just sitting pretty for many years to come. Uh, people, people engage with that, with Facebook and they're on it and involved in it all day and they're seeing stuff. And, um, and that means they have a tremendous amount of influence. And uh, I think it's true that um, for Mark Zuckerberg all the way down, um, Facebook leadership has really only recently come to, if not understand, act like, wow, we have to have a role in harnessing this power uh, or, or, re or rail it, reining in uh, how it's used uh, or else it just becomes, you know, a, a free for all that, uh, that can't be in any way regulated. And when I say regulated, I mean by the company itself, you know. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think we know that social media is where conversations about politics and policy are happening. I mean, whether it's uh, campaign and elections or down to, you know, our previous conversation about mandating flu vaccines. Uh, social media will continue to be plat platforms that people rely on to have conversations and share news. And there we've got to figure out a way to make those conversations as factually based as possible uh, for, quite honestly, the betterment of democracy uh, and society, to, to put it as simply and, and widespread as possible. Indeed. All right, Cayenne, thanks very much. And to another you. Good, another good week. <clears throat> uh, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go, recorded remotely from various locations around the Commonwealth and these United States. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. I'm Stephen Johnston, Managing Director and General Manager here at the Boston Harbor Hotel. Uh, despite the fact that we can't meet together in person here at the hotel for this meeting, we're pleased to be a longtime host and partner with O'Neill and Associates for these timely and important discussions. So thanks so much for joining us today. And it's my great pleasure to welcome the CEO of O'Neill and Associates, Tom O'Neill. Tom? Stephen, thanks so very much. You're a wonderful partner. Uh, we've been doing this now for a number of years, and I want to thank you. And it's, it's no surprise, but uh, coming back in a campaign and, and, and in an election season is our dear friend, David Paleologos. Yeah, he's here to discuss politics generally, but on the eve of elections, if you will. And uh, there's, as everybody knows, an awful lot going on. So I too want to welcome everybody for coming and joining us in this, in, in this remote virtual meeting that we're having. I think you're going to enjoy it. 
Uh, I want to introduce David, uh, not only as a, as a, as a friend, he's, he's really a dear family friend. Uh, he's an associate, he's a professional that we work with from time to time. He is uh, a pollster of renown, um, the, uh, the great Nate Silver from uh, 538. Does a ranking of all pollsters in America and has ranked David and his company amongst the very best for accuracy, for transparency, and for being right on target every time. David is known for making sure that he pinpoints various cities and towns around the state or around the country, which become the bellwether areas. So he, from which he can tell who a winner is going to be and where the one and when the loser is going to show up. Yesterday's primary election here in Massachusetts was no different. Uh, David was right on target. He called it uh, not from the day one of both announcements, both candidates' announcement of a year or a year or so ago, but from a month and a half or two months ago, he did. He saw the change in the atmospheric condition. He made a prediction and he turned out to be absolutely correct. Let me introduce my dear friend, David Pelliologos to all of you. And thanks again for joining us. David. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thank you to our friends at the Boston Harbor Hotel and their leadership in their space on COVID-19. It's great to be back with you all. So I'm here to talk about some data trends for the 2020 general election now that we're shaking off the the Democratic primary and, and, and all the conversation around that. And, and so I, I thought I'd share a couple of slides with you about Suffolk University, because of course I have to do these presentations, but I also want to promote the university and, and talk about the kinds of partnerships the university has. And, you know, when you have a great friendship like I do with Tom O'Neill, he has that direct link to these this screen of the people who I deal with and the people who have entrusted me to do their polling. And for this fall, we're doing polling nationally for the USA Today. You might have seen our, the first half of our national poll, which was released this morning. The second half, which I'll talk a little bit about, maybe give you a heads up on, is going to be released tomorrow and will probably be front page news. We also poll at the Boston Globe uh, regionally and a number of other states, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the York Daily Record, the Reno Gazette, the Arizona Republic, the Journal Sentinel in Wisconsin. And when we think about the top research institutions like Man Marist and Monmouth and Quinnipiac and others, Suffolk University has more media partnerships than all of those universities combined. And uh, many of them uh, have been around longer than we have. Well, what does all this praise and accolade about Suffolk University matter to you? And it matters because, again, of the O'Neill network and his uh, ability to have his hands on the ground and, and, and be very granular in his approach to dealing with clients. And so minutes mean a lot in polling. Having an information when no one else has that information means a lot. And I'm not uh, Tom's only source. Tom has a, a wide net that he casts, and I'm, you know, we're, we're one of the preferred partners. Having advanced notice on national trends is so important for companies, because oftentimes we're not just polling about politics and politicians, we're polling about finance, healthcare, transportation, education, issues that a lot of the O'Neill clients are dealing with right now. How are we gonna manage things? 
Uh, it also gives you the benefit of state-specific issues to shape goals and targets. There might be an issue that your company or that your affiliation might have in a particular state. We're in those states. We're constantly polling those states. Tom has access to not only that information, but also he's got the mind to read a poll. Nobody really can read a poll as good as Tom. Oftentimes, and I, even when I do interviews, and I did a lot of them today, people don't understand crosstabs and they don't understand polling. Tom's, Tom gets it. So it's great working with him on, on a lot of these issues. We also have the ability for you to place questions on public polls. There is a fee for that, of course, um, but it's a lot cheaper than dropping $50,000 to do a national poll or you know a sequence of state polls and focus groups. With, a, with Tom O'Neill, you have that access. I also write a column for, uh, and I'll be writing one tonight, when I, when I get off tonight, uh, for USA Today Online. Uh, one of the columns that I wrote a couple of years ago, 2018, was about how healthcare was a big crossover issue for Democrats, a real winner in the general election, not just in the, in the Democratic primary. Uh, Democrats haven't seen that yet. They haven't found their way to figuring out how independence can be won over with healthcare. On the flip side, our polling has also showed that public safety is a big winner for the Republicans. And you see with all of the racial unrest and the protests, how a crossover issue like that can begin to close the gap, which is what Donald Trump has done in some of the recent polling. You also have the ability of an analysis and forecasting with, with O'Neill. Very important to have that analytical ability and to be in a shop where you can do so many different things, where polling is just one thing. You've got crisis management. You've got the ability to do client relations, uh, federal and state and local. There are so many opportunities. And I know from experience, there are oftentimes you may have a person who you use for your researcher, a person you use for your PR, a person who you use for uh, you know, client relations, and they don't get along and they don't gel. Well, with Tom, and one of the things I'm impressed with him is that you get it all together. It's one team all in the same wavelength, and it's a very efficient way to manage things. You also have coordination of internal marketing and public survey narratives. I mean, that's just so important when you've got a team that's laser-like, that's on the same wavelength. And then, you know, uh, we do research that others have not done. And some of that research you might find crazy. We're going to talk about what likely voters want and think, but what about people who don't vote and why do they matter? And that's where I wanted to start my presentation. This slide is a slide that shows total votes in the blue of the Democrat in the presidential election in 2008, 12, and 16. The red number is the total votes in millions cast by the Republican. And that gray bar is the total votes not to, total people who did not vote in those presidential years. So in 08, you had Barack Obama, 70 million, 60 million from McCain, 80 million people who were eligible to vote, citizens who were eligible to vote in the United States did not vote in 2008. In 2012, 66 million for Barack Obama, 61 million for Romney, 90 million people. That bar went up. 10 million, 90 million people in the United States who could have voted didn't vote either because they weren't registered or they were registered but just skipped voting in November. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton again is at that 66 million number, popular vote winner, 63 million votes uh, uh, for Donald Trump, 
and 95 million people who are eligible to vote. So when you think about this, there are, there's, a, there's a large block of people, and it's not a million here, a million there. It's a big block of people. It's gonna be 100 million people in 2020 who are eligible to vote, who won't vote. The blue lines are gonna be straight across, 60, mid-60s. The red line is gonna be straight, straight across mid-60s. That's a significant, and no one's polled it until Suffolk University polled it. And we polled it a couple of years ago, and we asked the question. We only polled people who weren't registered or, were, or who were registered and not voting. So the people who weren't registered, we said, why? Why aren't you registered to vote? My vote doesn't count. It won't make a difference. Apathy, 12%. I'm too busy, no time, 8%. I dislike both candidates. I, 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 it's dirty politics. Uh, similar responses on the right side. You are registered, but why won't you vote? Lack of information, 11%. My vote doesn't count, 9%. And again, we're talking about 100 million people in the 2020 election. So we researched this. I wanted to just briefly go over our national poll, which just hit this morning, and it's on USA Today. In our poll, we are presenting the four candidates because both third-party candidates are now certified on a majority of ballots in the country. Joe Jorgensen is on all of the ballots. Howie Hawkins is on most of the ballots um, and still attempting to be certified in addition to Trump-Biden. That matters because we polled the race this morning and released it two different ways. First, we included the presence of the third party candidates. And you might say, well, it doesn't matter. Hawkins didn't even get a percent and Jorgensen only got 1%. But it does cause people to pause. And there might be people in these states who absolutely won't vote for Donald Trump, but who may not feel comfortable voting for Joe Biden, either because they don't think he's progressive enough or that they think uh, you know, he's, he's too much so. Uh, and might opt for a libertarian. And our finding was that the lead, which was 12 points in June for Biden, is now 5.3% when you include third party candidates with 7% undecided. Now, what we did after we asked this question was we said to the Hawkins, Jorgen, uh, uh, Jorgensen, uh, other voters, and the undecideds and refusals, what if it was a two person race? And that's where Biden begins to widen his lead. Just under 50% for Joe Biden, 49.8 in the blue, 43% for Donald Trump, a seven point margin with 4% undecided. That's a much more comfortable lead to be at 50% with only 4% undecided and to have a seven point lead. But there is not a ballot in this country that only has two choices. You always have third party choices and some states have 10 candidates for president. Some have 20 candidates for president. So it's a dynamic that we as pollsters, we have to replicate. Uh, we can't make this a two person race if there were more than two names on the respective ballots that are certified. Again, to hear the full webinar and more from Dave Paleologos, please visit our blog at O'Neillandassos.com. Hi, Guyanne. Hi, Tom. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty, pretty good. I have uh, an old friend that ran for the U.S. Senate this week in Massachusetts um, 
for re-election, and he won, and he won decisively. That would be a Senator Ed Markey. Senator Ed Markey, a true friend. Somebody that I went to Boston College with, went in the, in, into the Army Reserve with, went to the state legislature with, and uh, we've been friends for a long, long while. I've known him. He, he's a great guy. And um, his campaign was about consistency. What was he like when he was opposing nuclear power back in the 70s with Peter, Paul, and Mary? He's no different today uh, with the, green, the new Green Deal. Um, and the way he fights for, you know, every single man and woman in the state of Massachusetts all the time. He's just, uh, he's just out there, you know, promoting a very progressive package and I'm very proud of him. Yeah, something occurred to me amidst this race and I was talking to a couple of folks about it earlier this week. Uh, there was a lot of people that talked about Kennedy and, you know, why he would run at this time and their platforms really weren't all that different. Um, and when, Senator Markey was on the podcast, our podcast, speaking to you a couple of years ago. I remember something that has stuck out to me was that he said since Trump has come into office, he has been more energized and more excited and, and feeling committed to his work every day that he gets up than ever before. And I think that you really saw that throughout this campaign. Um, you know, months ago, the, the numbers looked very different just a testament to politics and, and how things can change and a well-run campaign and good grassroots efforts with a strong message. But I think that that was something that perhaps the Kennedy campaign overlooked was just how excited and energized Ed Markey has been in recent years. You know, um, I, I, think, I think the Kennedy management of the campaign, um, I think they they just took for granted that Ed Markey was old, tired, and couldn't possibly stay up with the pace that young Joe Kennedy could give him. And uh, it was just a terrific underestimation. And not only that, Ed Markey's campaign was brilliantly run. And Joe's, and Joe's campaign, frankly, was flawed from the beginning, giving people no reason at all to understand the major difference between he and Eddie Markey. In fact, there was none. And therefore, the, the reason for his campaign and his candidacy were aimless. And, um, you know, the, everybody got it. Everybody got the message, whether it was Ed Markey's first campaign Here commercial about, about no. where he came from or his second campaign commercial about working for the average man or woman or the third campaign commercial talking about the future, the Green New Deal with, with AOC, you know, giving a brilliant line of it's not a man of it's not a matter of age. It's a matter of ideas, um, and and it caught it, and it just took off like a rocket ship. And uh, I'm afraid Joe Kennedy's campaign never caught up with it, never understood it to catch up with it. To be very honest with you. Now, having said all that, Joe Kennedy is is somebody who I think gave a terrific speech uh, uh, on on Tuesday night as he was bowing out and congratulating Ed Markey, <clears throat> and I think. I think it's not the death knell of the Kennedy dynasty, and certainly not Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy is a is a brilliant young man with a terrific career ahead of him, uh, and it could be in politics. And I think we'll you know I think we'll see him come back in the next two years, going for something that uh, you know that will make him success and, and and very viable for the future. 
I'd agree. You know, so many people have written, and not just here in Massachusetts, but the, the race got a lot of nationwide attention. The, the Washington Post had at least one story on it in the last 24 hours. Um, people saying, you know, what's next? Is, is Kennedy and the Camelot down for the Cam-? We're forgetting that Joe Kennedy is, is smart uh, and determined and still very young. He has a long, long history, a long, long road ahead of him in terms of what he's going to do and the difference he will continue to make. And I think that that's to be expected. I think he's a young man. He's a noble young man with a terrific public service career behind him and ahead of him, if that's what he wants. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm sure he's home licking his wounds a little bit, trying to figure out exactly what is, is best for not only him, but his family going forward. So do you think that this, what does this say for us in terms of looking forward? Are any indicators we should take from the election this week about next steps? We saw record turnout in, at least in Massachusetts. I think that's very exciting. We saw a record turnout. And usually with a record turnout, it denotes change. And in the, in the local elections, as well as in the, in the, uh, the uh, statewide senatorial campaign, as well as in the congressional elections, change didn't come. People went out and voted for Richie, uh, Richie Neal out, out in Springfield to stay in the U.S. Congress as chair of the Ways and Means Committee, and Jim McGovern the same way, and Seth Moulton the same way, and Steve Lynch the same way. All those folks were opposed, and they, they, they really drubbed their opponents, um, as did Maki. Maki won by nearly 11 points, which is a, a surge. It's a, a real plurality. Um, and in the local elections for state representative and state senate, no change really came with one exception, and it was one that was expected. Um, but all the leadership in the House and the Senate was reelected overwhelmingly. And, uh, and so I, I was rather surprised by it. But it was so the, the message for the state of Massachusetts is if you're doing a job and you're serving in Washington or serving in Boston, if, if, if you're doing a job, people will understand it and they'll vote you back into office because you deserve it. On the national level, that's not quite the same story. We've seen an awful lot of senators, uh, pardon me, uh, members of the U.S. House of Representatives in their primaries get defeated by younger, more progressive folks. Uh, and so that change is coming. We're watching a, a disproportionate share of younger people come out and vote for the first time in a long time. For example, in 2018, in the state of Massachusetts alone, in the age category from 18 to 29, 11%, only 11% of the vote of those voting were in that age category. This past week, it was closer to 24%. Uh, and, and so we know they're voting. We know suburban wives uh, are voting and, uh, and mothers are voting. And we know that women are going to play a, a pivotal role. Um, Nate Silver, who is probably uh, one, of the, one of the finest um, um, pollsters we have in the country, recognized for being as accurate as he is, stated this week that he thought Joe Biden had a 67% chance of winning and, uh, and that the president had only a 27% chance of re-election. Um, now, that's exactly where it was four years ago. We have a lot to watch. We have a lot to see. There are an awful lot of people not taking Joe Biden's campaign for, for granted, as perhaps was, was clearer the case back in 2016 with Hillary. Um, the pivotal states, the swing states are going to be paid attention to. And whoever gets in there and campaigns the hottest, works the people the hottest, 
makes more sense to the people in, in the greatest way is going to be the victor. Fingers crossed. <laughs> anyway. But what's coming, Tom? What's that? What's coming? I think what's coming is uh, a vaccine, probably not before the end of the year. Uh, for the general population, we'll probably have it by late spring for everybody. Um, and I hope that's the case. So that's coming and that'll be a brighter day as we continuously talk. Uh, I, I do believe I do believe that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States, but I think we have an awful lot of work to do. All right, well, let's get to work. Let's get to work. And can I say again, thanks, Diane, thanks for your, for your time and your effort, I appreciate it. And you, it's always good to catch up with you, Tom. Always nice to talk to you too, thanks. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.